0: Tom and I'm the stand-in guy this morning um, as Graham is obviously sick and I should mention first the Mo. Yes, it's real. And uh, for the last three months I've been growing this epic beard trying to catch up to Lockie um, but then I was like, no, nah, can't do it so shaved away the bottom half and thought, you know what, I'm going to keep the top for a little while uh, and maybe only like you know a week or two and then as I was like, yeah, I'm going to keep this novelty face for a little while, then I got the message from Graham and he's like, hey Tom, can you preach on Sunday? <laughs> and I'm like, yes. But I really want to keep the mo. So anyway, I just didn't tell him about it, and now yeah, here it is. So, a guy told me yesterday that I kind of look like Tsar Nicholas. Um, I don't know if I'm going for that 1917 Russian vibe, but yeah. Some people say French, but you know you can believe what you want about it. Anyway, uh, this morning we're looking at uh, this chapter from Matthew chapter nine. And I'll just pop that one down and open up this one and I've chose this one because it's just a beautiful tapestry of faith a bunch of different faith stories and we'll kind of string them together and see what they say I chose it also because I wrote it a few years ago and I didn't need to you know you could just pull this one out of the file that was pretty easy um, and additionally I picked this one because I've really been enjoying the gospels over the last few years I'm 35 now, and for me and my faith journey, my early 30s has been interesting because it's been a time of deconstruction, a time of questioning, a a time of challenging the truths that I accepted from when I was young and and reimagining those while still holding a a precious and dear faith with my Saviour. And so as I've been doing that and reading about Jesus, who in his early 30s was able to do these incredibly commanding and bold things, it's just been... For me, it's been a striking contrast. Like, the last time that I was able to call together a group of people and call out, uh, you know, a few of them to be my select followers that will be my best friends to do whatever they want together was when I was six years old, right? <laughs> that that was when I had the courage to do that. And And, yeah, and so just... For me, the Gospels are special because as a a mid-30s man who's been in a few leadership roles, I'm now seeing him in a different light, and so that's been a bit precious to me. So anyway, today we're asking the question, how good does my faith need to be? And so as we see these different faith stories, that question will hopefully guide us. Because that question is... It's one that comes up for, for the young Christian, for the old Christian, for, for everyone, isn't it? You know, How good does my faith need to be? This question of assurance often is with us all of our lives. I remember when I was in year eight, um, I actually didn't have a ridiculous mow then, I had um, bleached blonde tips in my hair, that was that was the rage back then, anyway, uh, I had a good friend who wasn't a Christian and we, we met at youth group and so we'd often go surfing together uh, and then one time... We were away down at his place on the south coast on a surfing trip and we were chatting late night as as friends do and he said, Tom, who have you got a crush on? Um, And I was like, oh, I don't want to say and he kept on probing, probing and poking around. I was like, all right, I'll tell you. Her name's Jeddah. and he's like, "Whoa, Jeddah, She's, you know, she's really cute. She's really nice. You should totally ask her out." And I'm like, "Oh no, I'm not in her league. Like, it's it's just not going to happen." Um, and at that point, I realized, uh, like, my friend wasn't a Christian. I'd been talking to him about Jesus stuff for a while, and I said to him, "Look, tell you what? How about I cut you a deal? If you become a Christian, I'll ask the girl out." Nice. Um, and it, like, it was going to be, you know, I, I was willing to do that. So I remember. I forget, I had, to, I had to get a home phone number. That's how we did it back then. And I dialed it up and her mum answered. Um, and I was like, hi, oh, is, is Jeddah there, please? <laughs> and then I said, hey, do you want to go out with me? And she said that beautiful line that, you know, every young boy hates to hear. Tom, I think we'd be better as friends. Oh. It wasn't the first time and it wouldn't be the last time. Uh, but I was rejected and held up my end of the deal. So I said to my mate, all right, what about you? Are you ready to do this? I'll sit down. I'll pray with you. Let, let's make this the moment where you come to Christ and He is your Lord. Uh, and I'll never forget. He said, "Tom, I'm not good enough to be a Christian." Uh, uh, you know, for whatever he thought, like maybe he, he thought that he had to be converted in his actions first, or whatever. He he, he wasn't willing to move towards Jesus. His his faith wasn't good enough, and so. There's a question, you know, that that plagues the young and plagues the old and all of us in between. How good does my faith need to be? Conveniently, Jesus answers that for us in Matthew chapter 9. And so we'll pick it up with the the first story. This is the hands-on faith of uh, Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Um, In verse 18 of chapter 9, it says, While he was saying this, a synagogue ruler came and knelt down and said, My daughter has just died. Um, If you come and put her hands on her, she will live. Uh, we know this story from the other Gospels as well. It's a somewhat famous one. Jairus, the synagogue ruler, is a guy that has authority. Uh, we know from Luke chapter 13, there's a story of a synagogue ruler there. Do you know that story where on a Sabbath, a, a woman with a crippled hand is brought to Jesus and uh, and then Jesus heals her on the Sabbath and then the response of the synagogue leader is that he's angry and indignant that that would happen on the Sabbath. And so these, these were the kind of guys that protected and were guardians of the religion of the day. Um, Additionally, later in Acts, we read about Paul uh, going up to speak at one of the synagogues and in order to get permission to speak, he had to do it through the synagogue ruler. And so these were the guardians of the pulpit. These were the guys that knew who could preach. Who could open the word of God, and they were the protectors of the religion? If they got it wrong, they would get angry at them and then shout them out of the town. And so this was a guy of standing of authority who knew the Bible and who knew the local customs of his land, and yet he was willing to humbly fall down at his knees before a political revolutionary and say, "Lord, can you please come and put your hands upon my daughter?" Now, the weird thing is, is that he asks for the touch factor. If you look into the Old Testament, there all of the healings that happen there, there's not much touch. Like a lot of the healings that God does are, are big and there's no human-to-human contact normally. If you dig deep enough, you'll find a couple with Elisha and with Elijah, those two prophets. Um, and there was, you know, a widow in Zarephath who had her, her son that was healed by Elisha laying down on him. And then he came to life again. But the, the reason that this particular guy wants a hands-on healing is just a little bit confusing. Maybe he thinks that the spirit of Elisha and the spirit of Elijah is in Jesus. That's what, Maybe that's what's going on. We don't know. But nonetheless, he pushes, Jesus, you must come and touch her. Now, we know that Jesus doesn't have to do a touching healing. In the chapter before, a Roman centurion comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, can you do a long-distance healing? And he's like, yeah, no problem, I'll do it. So, So that... That precedent has already been set up, yet nonetheless he says you need to touch her, Jesus obliges and and comes with her. And so his superstitious faith that needs more proof ends up actually working. And so that's the first guy, the hands-on faith. Let's keep moving on to the second one we have the hidden faith. This is in the middle of that story. This is the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. And again, we learn more about her from the other gospels uh, and that she'd spent all of her money in uh, trying to heal this disease and she's just helpless. And so this is a moment where also there was crowds around and then she comes up from behind and then takes power out of Jesus, almost like, it's almost like an involuntary healing on Jesus' part. And Jesus turns and says... Who took power from me? And, you know, the disciples say, "Uh, come on, Jesus, like everyone's touching you here. He's like, no, I felt it. Power came out of me. We pick that up from Luke and from Mark. Um, And yet this woman, knowing that she can't go unnoticed anymore, she pipes up and says that it was me. And so if you were to kind of look at the faith at this point, it's almost like a a criminal faith, isn't it? It's a pickpocketing faith. She comes from behind. She does it without being seen. It's like a cat burglar faith. And yet in that very moment, like this one gets me every time, Jesus says to her, daughter, "Like my my precious daughter, not how dare you steal my faith, you pickpocketing little, you know, but daughter, go in peace, your your faith has healed you. Or or, take heart, he says in Matthew, your faith has healed you. And so again, a superstitious pickpocketing faith works. Let's keep going. Next one is interesting. This is the backward faith. Uh, And so this is the two blind guys that come up to Jesus. And check out the order of this. Um, So we have in verse 27, Jesus went out from there and two blind men, first of all, they followed Jesus. And then next of all, they cry out, son of David have mercy on us they make this declaration that you are the messianic king the one that was promised from long ago you are king david and and the one that's going to restore israel they probably thought it was going to be a political and military um, restoration but nonetheless they gave him the correct title and then they understood who they who they were because they weren't like you know king bring us to your right hand and your left hand and give us power no they said king david Have mercy on us. And so they understood their position before him. And then Jesus has this beautiful faith question where he says, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they reply saying, Yes, Lord. They've just declared him to be king and now they're declaring him to be master and God of everything. And so Jesus says, According to your faith, let it be done. And their sight... ...was restored to them. And so they have the restoration, the reconciliation and the healing... ...which means that they can have their eyes working again... ...but also be restored to the community as well. Now at this point, then Jesus says... ...oh yeah, by the way, don't tell anyone about this... ...because my time is not yet... ...and I actually don't want to go super public on all this stuff... ...and so if you could just keep the you know the fan club stuff down... ...that would be really helpful. Um, but nonetheless, the, the final verse of this little story is... ...verse 31... But they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. So after they've called him the king and then the lord, then they directly disobey his only commands to him. Isn't that fascinating? I call this one the backwards faith because they start with following, then they move to a declaration of his lordship, they have a faith discussion, they have reconciliation, and then they have di- disobedience. Normally it goes the other way, doesn't it? We, we disobey, we, um, we get reconciled, have a faith discussion... Declare him as Lord, and then follow him for the rest of our life. And yet, even though Jesus knew that they were going to be disobedient, he still healed them, and, and their faith still worked. And so then, the final one that we have in this is the um, I call this one the missing faith. This is where, uh, as they were going out, there was a man who was demon possessed and couldn't talk, and he was brought to Jesus. And so this is a guy who gains healing. And he's not even there. Like, it's, it's the faith of his friends that bring him to the place. So he, he doesn't, he might have a faith we don't know, but it's just not even mentioned. And then, even after the healing is done, then the religious leaders of the time misinterpret it and they go, ha ha, we know how he did this. Satan, that's how he did it. Uh, and so they, like, it's just totally messed up. Yet, we've got to ask, did it work? And the answer is yes. And so, if you were to take all of these four different faith stories and stitch them together and ask that same question how good does my faith need to be the answer is well not very you can have a very dodgy faith and it still works doesn't it Um, faith as small as a mustard seed can move the mountains Um, I don't know about you but that brings me great comfort to know that the dodgy faith the insufficient faith the superstitious faith the um yeah the, the shameful faith all of them work and Jesus accepts you as you are if you if you come to Him. Um, to illustrate this, I, um, I remember. Here. Let's just think about um, the Passover for a moment to to kind of think about how powerful uh, a dodgy faith is because it's not it's not great faith in the saviour. It's safe in uh, it's it's a faith in the great saviour. Um, Imagine the Passover is happening and there, were, there was two families uh, there, that heard that this was going to happen. Moses had been talking to Pharaoh and found out that there's going to be an angel of the Lord that's going to come and take away every firstborn child in Egypt. And so one family is just super bold in their faith. A couple of weeks ago at church we sung the song, And Can It Be? And you know the final line of that song, um, Bold I approach the eternal throne. And claim the crown through Christ my own. That's this family, right? They know their faith so well that they can boldly approach God and claim the promises that he's given them. And so when they were told that they could get a sheep or a goat, they went out and bought a goat because it was a little bit cheaper. And they knew it would work anyway. Uh, and they actually bought the goat only the night before um, because, you know, that they knew that everybody would be needing a goat at that point. And they were told to slaughter it at twilight until so sometime in the afternoon. They slaughtered the animal and they, you know, uh, put it over the fire, and they ate all the bits they were meant to, and then burnt all the bits that they uh, weren't, couldn't able, weren't able to eat. And then that night, they all went to bed at nine thirty, the same time that they went to bed every single night. Now, next door to them is another family, who uh, heard that their firstborn son might be killed. And so they actually took out a mortgage, took it took out a loan so that they could buy a sheep, because they knew the story of Isaac and how a sheep had been provided and that God loves sacrificial sheep. And so if there's a choice between a sheep and a goat, they're gonna go for a sheep. And then they bought that like a few days before and made it and fattened it up and they wanted to make sure it was completely blemish free and they were told to kill it at twilight and so they were watching as the sun set and as soon as the sun went down and the skies went purple that was the very moment that they slaughtered the animal and they had the buckets ready and they caught every last drop of blood and the father had actually made their own custom paintbrush that was exactly the width of the door frame so that they wouldn't get any on the walls because Moses had said it must be on the door frames only and they painted every last bit and they had a special ladder to get on the tops of it and then that night when they cooked the lamb, they knew that they didn't really like eating liver and kidney, but like they had to do it. And so they just ate the whole thing and felt, you know, a little bit queasy at the end of it, and they really wanted to go to sleep because they were super full, but they wouldn't. And that whole night they crowded around their only son and prayed and didn't didn't get one little bit of sleep. Now in the morning, who was saved? It was both. Yeah, that's right. It was both of them. Great faith saves. But faith saves. Both of them trusted in their God. And one of them had a shaky, dodgy faith that didn't fully appreciate the confidence that they could have to boldly approach the, you know, the promises that, that God had offered. And the other, you know, is even, but both of them got saved. The dodgy faith still works. Um, I wish I was to be able to say to my friend in year eight, like, you know, you don't need a great faith. Just come to God and he'll work it out. Uh, because that's who he is. He, he takes us as we are. Now, before we get too carried away at this uh, and then say, all right, a dodgy faith works, sweet, I'm going to have a dodgy faith and kick up my feet and, you know, let's have a cup of tea and we're done, right? Dodgy faith, I'm in. Woo-hoo! Um, that Jesus is very clear that although the, the dodgy faith works, he's really keen for us to have a great faith. And, and particularly if you look at his disciples, the ones that he chose, he was really scathing towards them and their faith. And, like, so if you, if you look back in Chapter 8, like, there's this story... Of Jesus and he calms the storm and then uh, the disciples in the midst of it cry out um, Lord save us we're gonna drown and then he gets up from his cushion because he was you know sleeping in the back and he says you of little faith why are you so afraid this is to those who are most close to him he's really scathing on their lack of faith and then later on when Peter walks on the water and then he's out there and he begins to sink and he, fix, he moves his gaze away from Jesus. Again, he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And so it's important to know that even though dodgy faith works, Jesus desires for us to have a great faith and a continually maturing faith that has fear driven away. Um, there's one guy in Matthew's Gospel who gets the greatest commendation for all of his faith. And, and he's... A really beautiful uh, illustration of this and we'll end with his story because uh, the, the Roman centurion comes to Jesus and he says, look, I've got a servant and he's suffering greatly and he can't move. And then Jesus says to him, shall I come and heal him? Like, I'm willing to go. This is what people expect me to do. And normally they expect me to come and to touch someone. And that's usually a beautiful gesture as well, that the unclean can then be rejoined into the community. And then restoration both physically and communally can happen as well. And so Jesus says, shall I come and heal him? And he's like, nah, we, we, can, do, we can do long distance. We can, we can try a telehealth system here. Um, he says, no... Um, I don't deserve for you to come under my house. Um, I wonder if he'd heard the preaching of John the Baptist who said, you know, there is one who comes after me who is greater than me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not even willing to untie. And so he he captures this idea that there is a great distinction between you and me. This guy might, like me, have been a 30-something-year-old man who'd had some leadership experience. But then he saw Jesus working in action, and he knew that this guy is different. I am created. He is the creator. I don't deserve to have you come underneath my house. And I'm a man of authority. I I know what it's like to tell my guys, jump, and they'll say, how high? But if you just say the word, I know that you will be that that my servant will be healed and then at this point we get this unique moment where jesus commends great faith he says truly i tell you i have not found anyone in israel with such great faith i say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with abraham isaac and jacob in the kingdom of heaven but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth And Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very moment. How good does your faith need to be? Not very. A mustard seed will do. How good does Jesus want your faith to be? Great. Great as the Roman centurion. He wants it to be humble. He wants us to take him at his word. He wants it to be public. And and in that find great faith i'm going to pray for us father we thank you so much for your son who came to us who's able to accept us as we are as we come to him i'll take the small mustard seed of faith but father we pray that you would in each of us grow our faith to maturity that we might be able to humbly know our position before you and take you at your word amen